Are we starting? Okay. You want to know the craziest thing that ever happened to me? Well, I have one. It was around five years ago, in October. I had gone to a scary movie with a group of my girlfriends, and afterwards we went to a bar for a few drinks. We were all sitting at the bar talking about the real murders that the movie we had just watched was based on, which got us talking about other grisly crimes, which turned into a game of who knew the worst story. One of us mentioned the woman who tried to feed her boyfriend to his kids. Someone else mentioned the guy who made his mother's head a dartboard. Then there was the guy who ate children, the acid bath dude, all your basic fucked up greatest hits. We had had a few drinks, so we were all pretty loud. And while this was happening, a man in a dark jacket and smoky sunglasses had noiselessly snuck into our little huddle and took up a seat two bar stools away from me. Wow, he said. You girls must have seen every Netflix documentary known to man. And Prime, my friend retorted. Well, said the man in the dark jacket, I'm among experts. Hey, Corey Feldman, you're inside. You can take those off. You're gonna spill a drink and that's alcohol abuse. My drunkest friend replied. I know, that's a lot of terrible jokes in one line, but she was very proud of herself and also very drunk. The man smiled and said, it wouldn't make a difference, I'm blind. Oh, we all say in a staggered and embarrassed blur. But I never spill, he says with a grin. So, I ask, do you have a story to contribute? Sort of, he replied. Something a little more extreme. That's why I came over here. I run an attraction for people who have seen it all. I couldn't help but overhear you and thought that you might be interested. It's $50 a head, and I promise you have never seen anything like this before. We all hesitated for a moment. An attraction? You mean like a haunted house? My friend chimed in. Yeah, something like that, he said. Okay, I said, how do we know you aren't just going to take us into the woods and kill us? Well, he said, first of all, I would fail, because judging by your voices, there are four of you and one of me, and I can't see anything. Second, we're not even leaving the building. And third, you can all keep your phones on you. No videos or pictures, but they can be in your hands, which means you could call the cops at a moment's notice. Oh, and you have to sign a waiver. A waiver, I say. Is it dangerous? Not for you, he replied. It's just your standard agreement not to sue us if you have a heart attack and not to reveal any of our secrets so that you don't ruin the fun for anyone else. Okay, we're in. I say, with far more confidence than I actually have. Great, says the man, follow me. We all sign a waiver and cough up $50 and then follow the man to the back room, which leads to a sterile looking hallway and then down a rickety set of wooden steps. When we get to the bottom, we are in an unfinished basement with a rusty brown dirt floor. I hear the door at the top of the stairs close and a lock click into place. It smells earthy, like iron and sweat. And in the center of the room is a man on his knees with his hands tied behind his back and a burlap sack over his head. A single light bulb again is swinging ominously over his head. We all gather around. We've been to haunted houses before. The chainsaw guys are gonna burst in at any second. The man in the dark jacket sits on the stairs. Another man enters the room. He is tall and broad-shouldered, wearing a filthy white tank top, torn up dickies, and a children's Halloween mask that looks like a grinning tiger. Lame, 
I shout, knowing that this worn-out trope is going to pan out the same as it always does. Just watch, the man in the dark jacket says softly. The tiger mask man jerks the tied-up victim to his feet, and he immediately begins to scream and beg for his life. Then the man in the tiger mask takes out a long, sharp blade and rams it into the man's stomach as he shouts in agony and begs ever more convincingly. We all wince. This is pretty realistic. Where are the chainsaw guys and the mad scientist? The man then pulls his victim over to a support beam and begins to tie him into place, all the while humming to himself. I notice that the wound on this man's stomach is still churning out dark red blood, staining his shirt and running into a pool on the floor. I notice that the floor has seen this before, and in the darkened corners I can faintly make out three other figures, stone still, with burlap bags over their heads. The man stomps by them, and his boots splash through a red puddle. It is then a realization hits me. I don't think this is fake, I say, panicking. I see my friends are pale and stunned, and then the man in the mask takes his blade and places it on the man's Adam's apple. He presses a little and then drags it downward in one ragged motion, slitting the victim from neck to navel. The sounds that came out of that man with the bag over his head and the warm, unmistakable smell of blood let me know that this was definitely real and we all began to panic and scream. I pulled out my phone, looked at the man in the dark jacket and screamed, what the fuck, man, I'm calling the cops. My friends have run to the top of the stairs and began pulling on the locked door, screaming for help. I walk directly up to the man in the dark jacket, look into his eyes and say, I'm calling 911. And then you're fucked. We all signed those waivers and so did you. The cops are going to destroy you. Oh, really? the man says coolly. Those waivers tell another story. They say you were all willing participants. In fact, you paid for this. And me? He shrugs. I didn't see a thing. You see, your hands don't have to be dirty to commit a crime. But then again, you must already know that. Expert. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Yeah, we have like a history lesson coming up, so I thought I'd give you like a good scary beginning. You know, those girls are dumb. They are dumb. (laughs) That's the point. He was just like, come with me to a back room for $50. All right, cool. Yeah, (laughs) basically. There are girls who would do that. I know. There are so many. And I would be so mad at them. (laughs) You would be the one yelling at the guy. I would. I'd be like, guys, no, we don't know anything about this. And they'd be like, it's October. Let's go to a haunted house. We're drunk. Woo. Oh, God, I'm best friends with these girls. (laughs) (laughs) We're all friends with some of these girls. It's okay, guys. I wouldn't have gone. (laughs) I'm like, I'll just stay here with Marty behind the bar. (laughs) Oh, no. See a blind guy. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. 
Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yes. (laughs) Wondering how that weird and grisly opening fits into the luck of the Irish? Well, don't worry. Soon it will all become very clear. But before we get to that, let me run through our standard announcements. Announcements? Mm, I can't talk anymore. First, if you have not done so already, please stop by Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make every last bit of difference in moving this podcast forward. Without reviews and ratings, we will shrivel into little raisin people and die. I hate being a raisin person. Me too. I also hate dying. Yeah. It's the worst. It's gross and little raisin people can't tell stories either. So it'll be a real inconvenience for you, our fiends, and your weekly listening. Mm. So it would behoove you to leave a review. Oh, yes. Only five stars, though. That's it. I, that's the only thing you can do. Yeah, anything else, like, doesn't accept it. And it looks sad. It does. You go down and eat just... You know, light them all up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, light them up. Second, if you want more We Would Be Dead every month, you can hop on over to Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you'll get a little gift from us, our extra additional monthly mini-sode, and monthly patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies. This month, we recapped Leprechaun, which was a time to be alive. It sure was. (laughs) Which is coming out soon for our patrons. And we will be discussing the fate of Slenderman stabbing perpetrator Anissa Wire with our friendly neighborhood mental health care professional, Andrew Jarima. Hi, Andrew. We're so excited. Hey, hey. Uh, Andrew is an absolute insightful gem. So you really want to hear this chat that we're going to have. Trust me. You also will get special access to a live Zoom green room where you can chat with me and Leslie and John Radicasa as we get ready for this month's live Campfire Stories event which is this Friday. Yes, March 19th. And uh, we will be talking about Irish folklore creatures. Okay. So you're going to get all of your fun, spooky little leprechauns and fairies and creatures. Leslie's leprechaun lesson. That's right. We didn't forget. Yeah. It's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) So be there for that. Um, It'll be live on, it's a YouTube live. That's how we do it now? YouTube live. It'll be YouTube live and we'll have a link out very soon. Um, we plus, already have it. Oh, we have the link out already? Yep. Even mm-hmm. better. See, I don't, I don't know. The- it's, a, it's in the Facebook event and on our link tree. Perfect. It's everywhere. So if you follow us on Facebook, which you should if you don't, you can find a link there. You can find it in our Facebook group, which is super fun. Mm-hmm. Anywhere. And on the Instagram bio. Everywhere. Just find it and come to it. It's, we had so much fun last month, mm-hmm. so I'm really excited to do it again. Plus, as a patron, you'll get discounts in our merch store and on-air toast dedicated just to you and much more. Lastly, if all of that was a little much for you, but you still want to help us out, you can simply share our content to your social media feeds. Then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Yes. That's the most fun. Huh. I think that's all I have for now. Do you have anything to add, Leslie? Mm, um, come back to me. (laughs) (laughs) This is the point of no return. Oh, Our toast shirts are in. They're very cool. Yeah, they're nice. Yeah. I hope you got one. (laughs) If you did get one, take a selfie wearing it and um, tag us on And we have a couple more left. And then uh, we are thinking if you guys like them, if Mm -hmm. you like the styles, let us know. And... We can get them in some other colors because obviously the green's really themey mm-hmm. for this month. But obvi- I also just like green, so that Me works. Too. Uh, but if you are thinking you want them in black or something else, let us know. Yeah, for sure. We love merch; it's fun. Yeah. Okay. See, kind of, you kind of had something. You're just, you're just softballing me things. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to have a thing. <laughs> just want that for you. One day I'll mm-hmm. have a big announcement. I'm so excited. <laughs> 
I made my centerpieces today. There you go. Great. Everyone wants to know that. (laughs) They look very pretty. Thank you. All right. Then on with the show. So last year for St. Patty's Day, we brought you the story of Bridget Clary, whose husband tortured her and ultimately burned her to death because he thought she had been possessed by a changeling. Yes, it was a heartwarming tale. That old chestnut. (laughs) So this year, we're going to go in a different direction. Cannibalism. Mm. Is cannibalism not something you associate with St. Patrick's Day? It is now. (laughs) It will be after today. Okay, then, to get us rolling, what are some things you do associate with St. Patrick's Day? Uh, Green. Yes, good. Green is definitely Uh, one. Shamrocks. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, No snakes. Yes, it should be your favorite holiday. That's my favorite holiday, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Get them out of here. Yeah. Long Catholic church masses um, and drinking. Yes, you got it right. Drinking. Well, you certainly do not have to imbibe to enjoy the greenest of holidays. There are many other ways to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It is undeniable that the day does go hand in hand with green beer and Irish whiskey. And by far the most popular and widely sold brand of Irish whiskey is Jameson. Which is why today we will be talking about James Sligo Jameson, one of the whiskey titans in the flesh, and his involvement in the grisly cannibalistic death of a 10 to 12-year-old girl deep in the African jungle. Oh, Sligo? Sligo. Sligo. County Sligo. Oh, my. (laughs) Well, that's where his mother's from. We'll get to that. Okay. Today's tale comes with a bit of a history lesson, so don't worry. It's weird and dark, though, so I promise you won't doze off. But, Leslie, yours are all front-loaded today, which I didn't realize. Oh. Yeah. So it's all Leslie in the beginning. (laughs) Actually, no, you have another one later on. Just in case this episode turns our listenership off of Jameson whiskey, we should probably provide some alternatives. Okay. So what do you drink when you're out for St. Patrick's Day? Just that curiosity. Yeah. um, I'm a Guinness girl, but there's other stuff. Right. So, I mean, there is other Irish whiskeys out there. So any whiskey that's distilled three times is considered an Irish whiskey. That's like, yeah. Um, it comes, whiskey comes from the Gaelic Ishka Baha, meaning mm. water of life. Oh, I love that. that. Yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. I like it. Okay. Uh, also stout beers like a Guinness. Mm-hmm. Um, those are also porters. Then they, um, apple cider or like cider beers okay. are, are popular. Um, and then cream liqueurs, too. So, like, Bailey's Irish cream is I didn't even big. think of Bailey's. I should have. Yeah. That's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were—so, Bailey's was only created in 1974. Really? And it was originally made for the sophisticated elder woman. But It's like <laughs> sugar water with, sure like, is. a little something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now everybody enjoys it. In their coffee. Little That's touch. Right. Yeah, and uh, and then obviously the most popular drink probably in America is the Irish car bomb, mm. which is not something we should say at all. No, don't, guys. Listen, <laughs> let me tell you about it. Please do. <laughs> all right. So most of us know what an Irish car bomb is. It is strictly an American drink. It involves a pint of Guinness and a shot of half and half of Bailey's and Jameson. And then you take the shot and you drop it into the Guinness and then you chug it before it curdles. I never, (laughs) I have never in my life done a single car bomb. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I can't. They're they're delicious. I will throw it up. 
You have to chug it. Yeah, but they're so good. Have you even, have you seen me try to do a shot? I, ca- I can't even do a shot in one sip. That's true, yeah. I don't, not yeah. for me. It's not for me. Too much liquid in my stomach. I throw it right up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm super full after one, so like, I don't know how people can just do them all night. I've seen people out at the bar for St. Yeah. Patrick's Day just like going through them. I know. I'm also lactose intolerant, so <sighs> even – if it doesn't curdle before I finish it, it's definitely curdling while it's in my <laughs> Ew, they are just, I just think they're a terrible time. It it's is. Not- I mean, it's a terrible time for me. The initial is is yummy, but mm-hmm. it's mostly because it's like cream and a porter and it's Ugh. good. Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, anyway. But, so this delicious stomach-curdling beverage. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> was created in 1979 by Charles Burke Cronin Oat. Oh, he has a lot of names. Yes. At the Wilson Saloon in Connecticut. It all comes back to Connecticut. It all does. I'm a little ashamed about this one. Oh, no. (laughs) He does regret his decision to call it the Belfast Car Bomb, a.k.a. Irish Car Bomb. Oh, man. He got specific at first. Yeah. Well, so this was, again, 1979, and... Bailey's was brand new. So I think there was a shot originally he did a – so bombs are a shot. Okay. Like uh, so anytime you have a shot in like another beverage and then you dump drop it. it, drop it in, they call that a bomb. Okay. So this very easily could have just been the Irish bomb because it's all Irish drinks and, and then everything would have been fine. But he specifically put Ugh. the car in there, which – No, no, no. There's no way around this. So he claims – that the name really comes from the act of dropping the shot in and not, as many believe, in the reference to the IRAs or the Irish Republic Army's explosive attack against Northern Ireland on July 2nd of 1972. So this was only just a few years ago in the news. Yeah. Everybody knew about it. In which they detonated 22 car bombs in Belfast. Brutal. So, like, he clearly knew what he was calling he it. He went so far as to say Belfast. And car. That's not an accident. No. Come on, man. Exactly. So, anyway. So, this day is forever known as Bloody Friday. Ooh. The 22 bombs went off within a time span of 80 minutes. Oh, my God. That's so fast. And killed nine people and injured 130. Oh my so, God. the IRA will actually say that the police, like, that they gave 30-minute warnings to each bomb and that the police didn't get there. Like, they didn't heed the warning. But the police are like, you put off 22 bombs in 80 minutes. We were just outnumbered. Like, we were out there. We didn't get these recordings. Like, we weren't ignoring them. No. What was the intention? And there was also, not only were those 22, so even if the IRA was actually letting them know, there was still a whole bunch of false um, bomb claims because people were seeing bombs go off. So then they were like, everything's a bomb. Oh my God. So they oh were God. just getting all these other fake bombs Chaos. coming in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bombings were partly a response to the breakdown of talks between the IRA and the British government. Since the beginning of its campaign in 1970, the IRA had carried out a bombing campaign against the economic, military, and political targets in Northern Ireland and less often elsewhere. It carried out 1,300 bombings in 1972. Good God. However, the Bloody Friday was a major setback for the IRA, and there was a backlash against the organization. So, like, everybody was—at first, like, some people were rallied behind them, just like they have, like, a—you know, they're here, they're— they're speaking for us in right. a sense. Like, we're, we're all angry. But then this, they were just like, you, like, 
hurt our people. Like, and you're you just a domestic terrorist. Yeah, that's a lot in one day. Like, this is wild. The other ones were a little bit more controlled. Nobody was really hurt. Mm. But so years later, the IRA formally apologized to the families of all the civilians it had killed and injured. But people were still just like shooketh. Well, like, yeah, <laughs> their relatives are dead. Yeah. And there were some, so that's like nine died that day, but yeah. then some of the injured, I believe, also died like later on in a few days. So Plus, there was. If you live there, you can never feel safe again. No. That's so many bombs in such a short period of time. That's mm-hmm. just terror. Yes, absolutely. Ugh. Absolutely. So um, the Irish remember this day the way we remember 9 11. So when they learned of the Irish car bomb, they were not amused. No. So here's your warning. When in Ireland, do not order this drink by calling it an Irish car bomb, but just like actually just don't even order it. Yeah, no. They're going to know what you're ordering, and they're like, we just don't make that here. You're fine without that drink. Yeah. And if you're in America, obviously this is a very popular drink, and it's something that we do. So just like either try ordering it by the ingredients— just to be nice, because you don't know, like, you, yeah. there's, you know, there could be other, like, Irish immigrants around. Or just, like, bartenders and bars just, like, start to come up with a different name. If we all just, like, did better, yeah, we could just all have a different name, which they have tried to do. And I think um, Oat, who, like, made the, he tried to come up with a different name for it. He's and, backpedaling, though. He knew well, what yeah, he did. He knew what he did, but he, uh, in a, I think he wrote, like, a whole history piece about mm. this. Because he's also now... He runs a bartending school. Oh. So he wrote a whole thing and saying, like, I just never expected this drink to be as popular, like, yeah. you know, reach the whole United States like this, mm-hmm. which it's, he's like, it's cool. But at the same time, now we've tried to change the name and we can't mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just too popular. And most people don't know this history in America. We call it like a, a Guinness Bailey's bomb or, or something. Like it literally or- could have just been an Irish bomb because it's That's just true. Irish drinks. So, like, I, I would think that, to me, I feel like that would take out the harm because we call all of those kind of drinks a bomb. Like a Jaeger bomb? Yeah. And which it could is have also just, disgusting. And it could have been a Guinness bomb. Could have yeah. Because we do like Smirnoff bombs and yeah. lemon bombs. There's a bunch of bombs. Gatorade bombs. I don't know. I have not I tried I just made that up. any of those <laughs> other ones, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> trying to think. What is a... Uh, I don't know, guys. Send us your bombs. Dr. Pepper bomb. Did you say that one? Ew, no. What is that? Oh, that one's delicious. I forget what the ingredients are, but together they taste like a Dr. Pepper. It's still a whole It's been a while since I bartended, and I, like, can't remember. My brother's, like, yelling at me right now. (laughs) (laughs) He'll text me in a couple days, and we'll be like, it's this. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? Well, we can send those recipes out when we get them as your alternate car bomb cocktails. Yeah. Because it's so offensive. It is. Well, so to put it in terms for us— Imagine if you were at a bar, especially in New York City, and some foreigner or ordered a 9-11 or a flaming Twin Towers. Wouldn't you just want to punch them in the face? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. So, like, let's not be assholes anymore. Yeah. <laughs> let's just do better, guys. Yeah, just, like, call us. Let's find something else to call it. I think yeah. that's great. Mm-hmm. Send us your submissions. <laughs> and they could put it, like, for St. Patty's Day. They can have it on a big board. With the ingredients. With the ingredients. Yeah. Just, like, a new name for it. Yeah. If everywhere changed it unilaterally, eventually mm-hmm. we'd stop calling it that. I heard there was another podcast that talked about this. I think it was like months ago when I listened to it. Mm-hmm. And they said something, it was like a BJ bomb. Because it was like a Bailey's Jameson Mm-mm. bomb. And they were like, BJ bomb. And I was like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> can't be. Can't be calling it that. Nope. That means something very different. 
<laughs> here in America no and think. everywhere else in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lordy. Man, we're about to get into a story, aren't we? We are. Come. <laughs> we'll just do history. Okay. Well, thank you for all your drink lessons. You're welcome. And I was wrong. You don't have all of your stuff right now. The other one comes in later. I did space you out a little. But do you know what the most popular drink is in Ireland? No. On St. Patrick's Day or just in general? Just in general. What is it? It's just regular beer. So whiskey is actually pretty far down. Really? Um, And Guinness is, is a popular drink, but one of the most popular is like Heineken and Budweiser. Garbage American beers? Yeah. That's their fave. And I feel like they drink them warm. Yeah, that's the thing. Because I know that Guinness is warm over there. Oh, warm Budweiser? That can't be right. Parents, my mom and dad, just cover your ears. That was the first thing I ever drank was warm warm Budweiser. Budweiser, And that was terrible. It can't be good. It was not. It's not enjoyable. No. Oh, man. But cold Budweiser is delicious. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) It's all right. Don't, don't hate us, Budweiser. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So if you're headed out to the store for some Irish ingredients to make this semi-quarantined St. Pat's lively, may I suggest you sub in some Red Breast or Green Spot? Both are Irish whiskeys and never and neither one have a cannibal story. Oh, good. Yeah. Cannibals. Cannibals. Okay. So Jameson whiskey has been around for a really long time. John Jameson, the first John Jameson, there are like a hundred of them, was born in 1740 and was originally a lawyer from Aloha in Scotland. He married Margaret Haig in 1768. Margaret just so happened to be the eldest daughter of John Haig, who is an extremely famous whiskey distiller from Scotland. John and Margaret had a family of 16 children. Oof, my vagina hurts. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Eight (laughs) sons and eight daughters. Good God. That is even. They should have gotten some kind of Irish Catholic reproduction medal. Yeah. <laughs> like, they just like marry them off to <laughs> Perfect. We can stay within the family. Oh, no. No, 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 no. It's not that kind okay, of. They're just cannibals. They're, well, only <laughs> I one. Know, I know. And he just likes cannibals. But yeah. They're no- <laughs> what a weird thought to have. John Jameson founded his own distillery, the famous Bow Street Distillery, in 1780. In 1805, John Jameson Jr. took over the family business and continued to build it up for the next 41 years before handing it over to his son, John Jameson III, in 1851. So Bow Street is a distillery in Ireland, and you can still go there. But John III wasn't John II's only son. No, we have to do a little bit of work before we get to today's subject, James Sligo Jameson. John Jr. had 12 children of his own. John, James, Robert, William, Andrew, Magdalene, Henry, Margaret, George, Malcolm, and Isabella. His fifth eldest son, Andrew, married a woman named Margaret Cochran from County Sligo, Ireland, and they had four children. John, Francis, Andrew, and the youngest, James Sligo, born on August 17, 1856, and named for the county of his mother's birth and, like, half the other men in his family. Mm -hmm. They have, like, five names. They rotate them constantly. Yeah. It makes it very hard to keep track of the generations. So I had to draw a chart. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Phew. Can you post that chart? Yeah, it's ridiculous looking. <laughs> I'll post I'll post the family tree. It took a little digging, but I got there. It's very muddy, actually, in a lot of sources. So if you go back and, like, rabbit hole this story and read other stuff, you will see it just this. He's like, he's the great-great-grandson of the guy that started Jameson, but nobody, like, goes into it. So okay. it takes a little digging. By the time James S. came around, the Jameson family was already one of considerable wealth. And that kind of wealth only continued to grow, as is evident by the fact that you can still order a Jameson in any bar you set foot in to this very day. Though modern Jameson is no longer owned by the family line, the company was sold to French drinks conglomerate Pernod Ricard in 1988. But Bow Street Distillery is still standing in Ireland, is currently a museum and a site where the barrels are stored and aged. So if you would like to learn more about the rest of the Jameson family and the spirits they produce, you can book a flight to Ireland and see the whole shebang for yourself. Patron trip. Right? I love that patron (laughs) trip. I hear the tour is quite informative, though it does skip over James Sligo and his story entirely. <laughs> they don't mention that guy. <laughs> I There are so many, like, Reddit feeds and, um, like, conversations about this story where people are like, I don't understand. I went to the distillery in Ireland. They didn't talk about this at all. I wonder why. wonder why. Yeah, this isn't exactly what, like, your company puts out. <laughs> right. That should be the side attraction from the beginning of your story. Pay $50 and sign a waiver, and you can never tell anyone about this, but There's you'll know. There's a shady know. guy in a bar that's like, yeah. for $50, yeah. I'll tell you a different story. <laughs> We're all like, yes, yes, you will. Okay, if we do this patron trip, you're going to be that shady guy sitting at the end of the bar. <laughs> oh, no. I learned my Irish accent from 10 girls from Cork a many, many, many years ago. So <laughs> if it holds up, it's it's all because of them. <laughs> oh. But anyway, stories like this are why you need me, obviously. Yes. So James, as we will simply call him moving forward because all of the other stuff is kind of confusing, was a man of privilege and leisure. He went on to marry a woman named Ethel Durand, and his occupation is listed everywhere as, quote, adventurer chronicler, explorer, naturalist, and artist. None of those things earn any money at all. He doesn't need to earn money. No, it doesn't matter because he was the heir to a whiskey fortune Mm -hmm. and rich white guys will always find a way. Yep. Throughout his adulthood, James would travel around the ever-growing British Empire collecting insects, observing birds, searching for new species, and hunting big game. Basically, he liked to stomp around the jungle in boots and pretend he was the first person to ever do so. It's like a five-year-old. I'm just imagining Flynn. <laughs> Never. <laughs> he did, however, um, find and name three species of birds, though. Naming them all, all after himself, of course. <laughs> they're just all Johns? No, they're or all. James, I mean. Jameson Ant Pecker, the Jameson Firefinch, and the Jameson Waddle Eye. Oh. They all sound like illnesses. Yeah. It's Jameson Waddle. <laughs> I have the Jameson Ant Pecker. Oh. What is that? <laughs> That's an awful thing. And it happened to your downstairs. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Jameson Waddle Eye is just like a lazy eye that drifts. Yeah. The Jameson Firefinch sounds majestic, though. Yeah. I'd have one of those. Yeah, me too. They're cute. Everything James observed, hunted, collected, or discovered would also go into his vast diaries, in which he would not only write elaborate stories, but also illustrate his adventures in great detail. 
That's where you get the artist part from. (laughs) Sometimes he would create ornate watercolors from these adventure sketches so that he could bring them back and share his experiences with everyone he knew. And this is the modern equivalent to traveling all over the world with the intention of Instagramming the shit out of everything you see. I'm sure we all know someone who does this, and I know it's hard to not be jealous of their life, but let this story be a cautionary tale. <laughs> let us all be content with our own meager surroundings. So I really see James, and we were talking about this beforehand, as like a trust fund baby. Mm-hmm. That like wealthy, rich, white boy that just does whatever the hell he wants and travels around and doesn't have a care in the world. And he's an Instagram influencer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That is exactly the kind of guy he would be. Adventuring, as they called it back then, was a hobby for the rich and the white. Many wealthy men of that era were fascinated with uncharted territories and would head expeditions into the undiscovered with the intention of bringing civilization to helpless savages and laying eyes on the deepest and most primal parts of that elusive creature known as man. Yes. Is this statement problematic? Yes, obviously. (laughs) But remember, this was a long time ago. And what these men were really doing was interrupting the lives of indigenous people who had been doing perfectly well without them. But we wouldn't adapt this method of thinking for a great many years or ever. So, like, think Donald Trump Jr. shooting a giraffe. Mm. That's basically Mm. what these guys are. Is my disdain palpable? I'm sorry. I'll scale it back a little (laughs) bit. Good thing I don't like Jameson. (laughs) You you don't like Jameson either, right? No. No, I— do those green tea shots that has Jameson in it? You know all the shots. What are they? Uh, oh, my gosh. I Is there green tea in it? No. But I think there is triple sec and – oh, my gosh. Wait, is that the one with, like, peach schnapps or something? I'm going to look it up real fast. Okay. Yeah, so the green tea shot is the Jameson whiskey. Okay. Sour mix, peach schnapps, and lemonade or Sprite. And it tastes like a green tea. It's really? pretty good. Yeah. Oh. I would say I have to go out and try these things, but I'm too old to not die. All that sugar, I would be so hungover the next day. Yeah, I'd, I can't do them anymore because Mm-mm. of that. Mm-mm. No, I can't do all the sweet stuff. Yeah. That's for the young. Mm. I just, I can't stand the taste of just straight Jameson, though. I don't like the I taste of Jameson that, either. I, I don't know if that's like all Irish whiskeys, if they all kind of have that taste, but. I don't. Like a lot of brown liquors. Maybe that's what it is. I like bourbon. Yeah. But I don't like straight up whiskey that much. Right. Yeah. Because I could drink a bourbon with like a little touch of orange or We put even nothing just straight, in though. That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I put like a fancy cherry in it and that's about it. Yeah. I like to do like an orange rim. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we'll do on Friday. In protest. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway. At the forefront of these adventures, there was sometimes a genuine scientist looking to catalog different species of animals or plants. And that said, without some of these guys, we wouldn't know about a large portion of the world's wildlife. And some of them also would discover medicinal plants and remedies from which treatments are used that we still utilize today. So some of their trips were useful. Not all, but some. Some scientists and doctors like Dr. David Livingstone and Dr. Eamon Pasha, who we we will get back to shortly, went out it alone or with a couple colleagues and attempted to do some good. But the vacation adventurers, these were the men who were less inclined towards that. 
They did, however, bring a considerable amount of other eager wealthy men along with them to fund these expeditions, many of which did not go super well, as you may have guessed. But if you were an amateur and you wanted to travel with the big boys, you had to get their attention. Among the most famous of the non-scientist adventurers for hire was a man named Henry Morton Stanley. Henry is most famous for battling through darkest Africa, which is what he always calls it. That's not my phraseology. And uttering the famous phrase, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? (laughs) Which never happened. Mm. I'm so sorry. Looney Tunes was wrong. (laughs) Nobody ever said that, and Dr. Livingstone did not need saving. And even if he did, he didn't want it, to be more precise. He did get sick for a while, but he didn't, didn't want anybody to come and get him. He was doing fine. But Henry is a man who built his life on lies and embellishments. He emigrated to the United States in 1959 as a bastard who had been turned out of several boarding houses by age 18 and changed his name from John Rollins to the ever more impressive Henry Morton Stanley. After a wealthy employer he may or may not have worked for. He has this fantastical story about walking off the ship in America. He docked in New Orleans and a man sitting on the dock and he looked at him and used the British saying, do you need a boy? Like, do you need, like, a servant or something? And the man said, I do. I never had a son. And then took him in. Oh. That's that's also a lie. (laughs) But it's a good story. (laughs) Do you need a boy? I know. That's the direct (laughs) quotation. That's, like, the apex of who Henry Morton Stanley was. He tells these, like, wild, embellished stories. That one may or may not be true. The guy, his last name was Stanley, of course, apparently did employ him for a little while. But they didn't necessarily have this father-son relationship that he said they had. But anyway, I know. I love fancy white people. Isn't it nice? And that's what it, that's what he wanted to be more than anything else. He wasn't a fancy person. He was born a very unfancy person, and he battled his whole life to make himself seem like one. Henry fought in the American Civil War for both the Confederate and Union armies. I mean, that's the way to do it. First, he enlisted as a Confederate. Then he got captured by the Union Army, and then he flip-flopped and fought for the Union Army, and then he fought for the Union Navy. Man. hmm What do you stand for? Nothing! <laughs> That's the point! <laughs> Clearly, he has no loyalties to anyone or anything. He was just doing what he was pointed in the direction of. His service in the war <laughs> just, between the states. Yeah, just this way. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, here I go. <laughs> do you need a boy? <laughs> I've always wanted a son. No, that's not. Come on. Okay. His service in the war between the states then led him into the United States Navy, where he became a record keeper on board the USS Minnesota, which led him into freelance journalism. That's right. A considerable amount of his future travels were conceived and funded by American newspapers. Mm. They were not philanthropic missions. They were publicity stunts. Another thing people fail to realize about this guy. Henry became a journalist in the days of the frontier expansion in the American West. He then organized an expedition to the Ottoman Empire that ended catastrophically, as most of his expeditions did, when he was imprisoned. He eventually was able to talk his way out of jail, because that's, again, come on, man, (laughs) and moved on to become a a liaison of the New York Herald newspaper reporting on several foreign wars before they sent him on his first solo expedition, which was to travel to Zanzibar to find Dr. David Livingstone, who, as I mentioned, didn't want to be found. Dr. Livingstone was in Africa in an attempt to discover the source of the Nile River. 
He was an American doctor and a missionary. He went with fellows from the church. He wanted to preach the word of God and tend to the sick and discover the source of the Nile River. And I'm simplifying this extensively, obviously. He traveled widely throughout the country and spent six years out of touch with the rest of the world. So he, like, fell off the radar after a while because he couldn't even, like, end up sending letters. He got very sick. He was taken in by Arab traders. He has a very fascinating life. But, again, he didn't want to leave. He just wanted to keep doing what he was doing in a way that would keep him alive. By the time Henry Morton Stanley found him, Dr. Livingstone was happy to see another Westerner. And the Dr. Livingstone, I presume, was something that Henry Morton Stanley published in a newspaper. The actual quotation, um, I believe, the only one that was taken down was from Henry Morton Stanley's, one of his assistants that he hired in Africa, so it would have been like an indigenous African, said, look, another Englishman. (laughs) Not as as catchy. Which means. (laughs) Not as catchy. But again, he wanted to be a fancy man, so he said this fancy line. And then it was printed everywhere, and everyone thinks it's a fact. (laughs) Wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. Dr. Livingstone did not want to leave Africa, and so Henry Morton Stanley returned to America empty-handed. But before that, he did travel around with Dr. Livingstone for a little while. So he, like, went with him through Africa looking for the source of the Nile River for a few months before being like, are you sure you don't want to come home? You should come home. You want to come home? And he was like, no. And then Henry Morton Stanley just went back to America empty-handed. And I mean extremely empty-handed. He claims to have brought 185 porters on this trip with him. He really brought 111 porters on this trip with him. And every single one of them either abandoned the expedition early on or succumbed to tropical diseases. Even Henry's horse was bitten by a tsetse fly and died of sleeping sickness. Oh, no. He came back alone. He didn't even have his horse. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But... Henry Morton Stanley could not be deterred. He wrote an extremely embellished account of this journey, and the world ate it up. But you can still buy his diaries. They're nuts. Before long, he was sent back to Africa to map the Great African Lakes and the Congo River, which this time he did pretty successfully, though he lost half of the men he brought with him and, like, 80% of the European men he brought with him. (laughs) So the people that accompanied him were some of his, like, white guy buddies from Europe and then like a bunch of African porters, which porters is like a really nice word for servants. They like carried his stuff and just keep picturing like a bunch of Guinness on the boat. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) No, it's people that like dug holes for tents and latrines and carried his bags and stuff. Yeah. So those are important. They're very important. And they didn't always, all of them didn't always die, but all the European guys died. (laughs) He was one of four that returned from this journey. So, yeah, on this trip of 111 men, like I said, he lost half the men. And after he got back, he was then approached by King Leopold II of Belgium, for whom he did go on to do some actual things. He did some stuff for King Leopold, but not everything he said he was going to do. What King Leopold wanted him to do was to annex land in the Congo um, and claim it on behalf of Belgium, which it seems like Henry did. But in reality, he got there spoke to the leaders in the area, rented a big parcel of land, and then was able to use it for trade. But what he told King Leopold was it was theirs. And then it came down to a point where King Leopold was like, I need these people to listen to me. They are my subjects. And Henry Morton Stanley had to say, no, they're not. Sorry, but no, sir. No. (laughs) Do you need a boy? (laughs) 
Yeah. So King Leopold didn't love it when he found out that the people of the Congo were not his subjects, but he also didn't stop working with Henry because there are few men insane enough to do the things that he did. Mm -hmm. Henry did, however, have, quote, great success in building trading stations and in completing the program of road building. Within three years, his capacity for hard work had resulted in the presence of steamships on the upper Congo. He also outwitted the French empire builder Pierre Severnand de Braza, and a clean. <laughs> I said that wrong, but you know what? <laughs> Somebody come in and say it pretty for me, and you can be dubbed over me. And claimed the best sites on the Congo for trading stations. End quote. I could go on forever about Henry Morton Stanley because he did a lot of things. And if you are a Stanley scholar, you'll find my retelling of his vast accomplishments to be woefully inadequate, no doubt. But Henry Morton Stanley is not who we're here to talk about. What I have given you so far, however, will set up the next leg of our journey and give you the information necessary to understand exactly what kind of trip James Sligo Jameson was on. You don't need to explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell him, Leslie. <laughs> you just go, girl. You tell this history. I'm just going to teach this lesson. Yeah. You're going to come along for the ride. Because of all of his well-documented journeys, by the mid-1880s, every adventurer worth their salt wanted to catch the eye of Henry Morton Stanley. Sounds so romantic. Doesn't it? <laughs> I'll catch his eye. Mm. Surviving one of his great expeditions was the highest order brag for one of these amateur adventurers, the highest that they could possibly hope to achieve, and they all wanted a chance at that glory. Sure, it was more plausible that they would die from a horrible jungle disease that's caused them to slowly dissolve into a puddle of goo from the inside out. But we're talking about wealthy white heirs to sizable generational fortunes, and I'm pretty sure they all thought they were invincible. Yeah. It happened to other people, but not me. Why would it ever happen to me? I'm me. Nothing happens to me. <laughs> that's what mother told me. Sure it does. <laughs> mother said I was protected by Earth. And I'm her boy. <laughs> I'm a good little boy. <laughs> and that brings us to the Eamon Pasha Relief Expedition. Eamon Pasha was a Polish doctor who, through a series of unfortunate events, ended up practicing medicine in Sudan in 1875. While he was there, he started collecting plants, animals, and birds to send back to European museums. So as we can see, he has at least one foot in the Explorer Club. Cool. Charles George Gordon, the then British governor of Equatoria which is an area in the Sudan. I don't think it's called that any longer. That was when the British was like, this is mine, and they claimed it. <laughs> uh, they then heard of Eamon's presence and invited him to be the chief medical officer of the province. Eamon arrived there in May of 1876, and Governor Gordon immediately sent him on diplomatic missions to Banyoro and Buganda in the south, where Eamon's modest style and fluency in the local language were quite popular. In 1878, Eamon was appointed Governor Gordon's successor. So now he's the governor of Equatoria. Eamon didn't do a whole lot as governor, though, as he was vehemently opposed to slavery. Good on you, Eamon. And the slave trade was, like, their main source of income in that area at the time. So okay. these people were, basically, there's a group of them that were kidnapping their own people to sell them to the states as slaves. Hmm. Or other regions. It wasn't just the states. Let's be real. After a handful of years as governor, Eamon got himself unintentionally involved in the Modest War. That's not like modest, oh my. It's modest, M-A-H-D-I-S-T. In which a rel religious leader named Muhammad Ahmad bin Abd Allah 
declared that he didn't care for Egyptian and British forces ruling over this part of his home country. And who can blame him for that? He also didn't care for the fact that he and his people were no longer benefiting from the slave trade, which he was strongly in favor of, unlike our peaceful pal, Eamon. Now, I have oversimplified this also enormously. Don't come at me, historians. This spelled trouble for Eamon Pasha, and word got back to Britain, who told the rest of the world, obviously. Which means it was about time for Henry Morton Stanley to stick his nose right back in where it didn't belong. Henry was commissioned by Scottish businessman and philanthropist William McKinnon, who had been involved in various colonial ventures for years, to lead a relief expedition. Henry declared himself ready at a moment's notice. And McKinnon then approached J.F. Hutton, a business acquaintance also involved in a lot of, quote, colonial activities. Mm, I'm sure some of that was shady. (laughs) And together they organized the Eamon Pasha Relief Committee, mostly consisted of McKinnon's friends. They all got together and were like, we're going to do something everyone's going to talk about. We're going to save this guy. Their first meeting was on December 19th, 1886. The committee raised a total of 32,000 pounds, which was a crazy amount of money back then. Hmm. So Henry would journey to Africa yet again and bring relief to Eamon Pasha and his people, and hopefully bring Eamon himself back to Britain where he could be nice and safe. There was just one problem. There's a lot of problems, but there's just one right now. (laughs) Henry was still technically working for King Leopold of Belgium, who agreed to let him go on the secret condition that he he would take a longer, more perilous route up the Congo River, contrary to plans for a shorter route inland from the eastern African coast. By taking this route, Henry could then annex more land in the Congo Free State for King Leopold of Belgium. But also, it put all of his men at serious perilous risk Mm. because they were traveling way longer and way deeper in the jungle and in way rougher terrain than they had to. And um, he made this out to be like, oh, it's much more convenient to travel on the river. It'll be much faster. It was way longer. But there were more snakes too. Oh, there's tons of snakes. On the Congo. I know. (laughs) By January 1st of 1887, Henry Morton Stanley was back in London preparing the expedition to widespread public acclaim, his favorite thing. Henry himself was intent that the expedition was going to be one of humanitarian assistance rather than of military conquest. Well, that sounds nice. It does sound nice. Because rich white European boys wanted to go on this altruistic mission to save people, not claim land for Belgium. Mm Mm-hmm. So, when this humanitarian effort into, quote, darkest Africa was announced, the Explorer Boys could not sign up fast enough. (laughs) The Explorer Boys. (laughs) Could that be a boy band? (laughs) Make it happen, world. Henry said that he had over 400 candidates to sift through, which probably meant 200 because he lied all the time. And James Sligo Jameson was among the five chosen officers because he only chose five out of these 400, 200, mm-hmm. to go with him. And then they pick up a bunch of African locals to take them on this trip. And this was due in no small part to his sizable donation to the expedition costs. So James Lego Jameson said, if you take me with you, I'll give you 1,000 pounds. Mm. And all of the men he chose made similar offers. So right. Basically, they paid for their journeys. You're all qualified because you have a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds? Well, that's just the qualifications you need. (laughs) And that's it. Come Uh, with me, boy. Yeah. You could be my boy now. (laughs) (laughs) You're all my boys. (laughs) Well, James was elated 
Because you see, this was more than just an exotic location to James. It was the home of the cannibals. Ooh. Not ghosts. (laughs) 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 I well, I don't want to make like a munching sound. Ew, never. Never, never make that sound. Nope. James had become completely obsessed by the rumored cannibal tribes in Africa. Now, let let me explain a little bit of something about this. In that time, in, like, Europe, cannibal was just synonymous with African local. Mm -hmm. They assumed that everyone who lived in Africa was the, like, crazy cannibal tribes. It's a horrible, awful thing to think, but it is what they thought back then. And wrong, obviously. And it was thought that uh, raucous, bloody cannibal feasts just happened all over the African jungles nonstop all the time. This is where you get, like, the headhunter symbol, like, that kind of trope. They thought that was happening all over the place. And if you wanted to see one, well, everyone thought that you merely needed to know who to ask. They're happening all over town. And so James Sligo Jameson set off with the famous adventurer Henry Morton Stanley for the jungles of Africa outwardly to rescue and provide relief to Eamon Pasha and his people. But in his head, those to see some cannibals. Yeah. He's going to find Stefan, and he's going to find out where that cannibal club is. <laughs> Africa's hottest club. <laughs> Every week we have a Stefan joke now. <laughs> we need to bring Bill Hader on here. Oh, yeah, that's easy. Yeah, we'll get him on. Somebody just give him a call. I wouldn't be able to speak at all. No, I mean, just tell <laughs> we he just do a Stefan segment. Right, right, right. Yeah. He does that for, like, every tiny little podcast. I mean, he would do it for hours. I love your confidence. <laughs> I'm putting it out there. <laughs> We're going to manifest that. Yeah. It's in the world now. It's on the vision board. <laughs> <laughs> Our vision board is just, like, red yarn and pins. <laughs> like, <laughs> so chaotic. Yeah. Like, we're solving a murder at all times. <laughs> In reality, the so-called cannibalism in the region James went to explore was purely religious. Now, in my What the Friday, a couple weeks ago, I explained all the different kinds of cannibalism. So if you want to know them, go back and watch that, and past me will tell you. Um, So what that means is that some of the people in that region would consume their dead in a funeral ritual as a mark of respect. But they did not kill people with the intentions of eating them. Okay. This is like a funeral So it was just a fresh body. Yeah, like if your grandma died, you would eat your grandma. Yeah. I mean. Not your grandma. Relax. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say it's like efficient kind of. Yeah, and I I, there's, I mean, It's like that Alaskan rule, like the Alaskan law, where if you hit a moose, moose, you have to to salvage the meat. So if your grandma's moose. (laughs) If your grandma dies, salvage the meat. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sure there's much more, like, of a mystic and religious oh, explanation sure, yeah. for it. I don't have the full thing, but I do know these are funeral practices that happen happen for quite yeah. a long time. Until yeah. they discovered that you could get a form of mad cow disease yeah. from consuming the brains of your loved ones. Yeah. And then they were like, y'all got to stop doing that. Bless mm-hmm. you, cat. It's my cat sneezing. I'm sure, because I'm sure it has to do with your ingesting, like, memories and life. It could, absolutely. And in that case, the sentiment is beautiful. Yes. I mean, the act to us is repellent, but to them, it's it's just a Mm -hmm. a matter of reverence. Mm -hmm. But, like, you got to not get that disease. I 
forget I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's in my What the Friday go listen to it. So anyway, that's that's the actual the only actual cannibalism and I put quotes around cannibalism that's happening is that. And true, there actually have been tribes of people who would consume their enemies in a similar aspect to like gain their strength and power. They yeah. thought if they ate them, they would like double their own power. It's like a video game. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but that isn't even what we're talking about in this mm-hmm. area. That wasn't even happening here. Right. But James didn't know this. He dreamed of an angry tribe of screaming men wearing human femurs as necklaces, dancing feverishly around a large boiling kettle and chanting. Again, we're back in Looney Tunes territory. But James very much wanted to believe in this fantasy, partly because Dr. David Livingstone believed it. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yes, the good Dr. Livingstone wasn't as awesome as we thought, as it turns out. He spent a large portion of his time in Africa offering, quote, a large reward in vain to anyone who would call me witness to a cannibal feast. So he went around offering a reward for anybody who would let him witness an act of cannibalism. Unsurprisingly, no one took him up on this offer. What he was looking for simply didn't occur. They couldn't. And he didn't know who to ask. Ah. James Jameson thought he would be able to succeed where Dr. Livingstone had failed he would find the right person to bribe into allowing him to witness this imaginary ritual. Of course, this isn't what James is telling people. James would write, quote, Ever since my childhood, I have dreamt of doing some good in this world and making a name which was more than an idle one. Mm. How noble it all sounds. For sure. And so, on May 11th of 1888, many months into this miserable expedition, James Sligo Jameson found himself in the town of Reba Reba, which is now called Lokandu, on the Lualaba River. I'm so sorry. I don't have a good pronunciation for that. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of the incident, Leslie, why don't you give us a little reprieve? Let's talk a little about 1888. Yeah, What's going on? What are the hot trends? Yeah, well, so 1888 was part of the Gilded Age in the U.S. history. It was an era that occurred from 1870s to about 1900. And it was an era of rapid economic growth, especially in the northern and western U.S. Mm. In the summer of 1888, Carl Benz began to sell motor wagons. Oh, Mr. Benz. And was the first commercially available automobile in history. That was cool. Really? Mm -hmm. The Benz was? Yeah. I didn't hear. I was thinking I was giving Henry Ford all this credit. I apologize because I meant to look that up. I think Ford was probably the first one in the U.S. maybe. Okay. But the Benz, so he's from Germany. Okay. And But this one was showcased at like the World Fairs, like the Exposition in Paris. And mm. yeah. Gotcha. Uh, some Marines were invented but still needed some work. There was like smaller ones, but they were like getting those off on the – Yeah, I don't want to go in any of those submarines. Yeah. You'd probably um, die in that. <laughs> uh, but the, I think around 1888, 1889 is when they were a little bit more solidified. So they were able to take those designs and then build them for right, what right, we right. use now. Not everybody died anymore. Yeah. Uh, radio raves were just starting to be successfully transmitted. Ooh. African-American music and ragtime is the popular music at the clubs. Okay, sidebar. <laughs> I, I I mean, like most people know this, but I'm like a, a theater person. Oh, That's I right, I am. I didn't know. Um, and the musical ragtime, if you're familiar with the musical ragtime, the father in that is exactly who we're talking about. At mm-hmm. one point he's like, I've got to go off to an expedition to the North Pole. And that yes. was just like a thing rich guys did. So if you are a musical theater person like myself— That's who we're talking about right now. (laughs) Perfect. 
Coca-Cola has been on the scene since 1886. Mm. Yeah. Well, that was when it still was full of cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Twain published The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Carlo Collati published The Adventures of Pinocchio. Oh. Robert Louis Stevenson published The Treasure Island, uh, published Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So good. Yeah. Also a musical. (laughs) Arthur Conan Doyle published his first Sherlock Holmes tale. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, My apologies. (laughs) Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Guy de... I'm going to do a terrible French one, too. Just <laughs> It's a bad day for French pronunciations. I'm so sorry, French fiends. Please pronounce them for us, and we'll dub it over it. Guy de Mazapant, my passant. My passant? My passant. My boy. <laughs> Guy de my passant <laughs> wrote The Necklace. Oh. Yeah. Like the affair in The Necklace? Like the movie? Uh, I don't know. Wasn't there a short story? I thought it was that short story, The Necklace. Maybe which I also, just wrote that down and I don't know. Which also might be the same story. It's like a Hillary Swank movie. Yeah. I don't know. I'll look that up later. And um, so just to give like a timeline for you, like in history, the Eiffel Tower would not be finished till March of 1889. So that was actually just being built during this time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's definitely like uh, the 1880s was like prime what these guys are doing, like all oh, about, yeah. like oh, going out, being being the first to do things. They probably had early cars, and they were. Oh yeah, they definitely would have been the guys that got those cars for sure. <laughs> yeah. So back in Reba, Reba James, who has been traveling with Henry's quote rear column, yeah. which is a I know it sounds <laughs> disgusting, doesn't it? But it was really referring to a port a par, a portion. <laughs> Of the company who would travel a leg of the journey behind Henry to clean up after him, basically. So, still gross. Yeah. None of it's good. He was like, you can't really have real jobs, so you just follow behind me and make sure our campsites are cleaned up and stuff. But for 2,000 pounds. (laughs) You could be up in the front with me. (laughs) You could be my best boy. (laughs) And you're the top boy, and you're my best boy, and all you back there are just boys. You're the cleaning boy. Ooh. Next time, have more money. <laughs> I like this version of it. <laughs> anyway, James is in the rear column. And so one evening, is uh, I say this to make sure people know that Henry was not with him when this happened. He was a leg of the journey ahead of him, and he was behind. Um, and one night after they had, I guess, done cleaning or whatever they needed to do, James was sitting around a fire with his interpreter, a man named Assad Faran, and a few of his compatriots and a group of locals. Now, at this point of the journey, James was in the care of the infamous and brutal slave trader Tipu Tip for the night. This guy has his own really awful history, but he just kidnapped thousands of people and sold them into slavery. Um, Not a great guy, but... On his many expeditions to Africa, Henry had made friends with Tipu Tip, who, in exchange for money, had guided him down the Lualaba—I can't pronounce this—Lualaba River before. So anytime he needed to make this trip, this awful slave trader man would take him. Mm. And now Henry was fully aware of what this man did. He knew. 
but he dealt with whomever he had to to get what he wanted. But people over in the West would never know this because it's not exactly nice. And so Henry Morton Stanley would not report this back. Tipu Tip was known as a ruthless and violent slave trader. You did not want your name associated with this, guys. Although many people must have because he was selling them all slaves. Right. This particular night, James Jameson was watching some local dancers perform, sitting around the fire, watching people do a dance with Tipu Tip. And he mentioned that he was fascinated with cannibals and he longed to see them in action. So Tipu Tip knew an opportunity when he heard one. He regaled James with tales of the local people, the Bakusu, and their cannibalism. Oh, gosh. He wound up a story that sounded exactly like the image James wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Wild men screaming and tearing at other men in the jungle and eating them. James was excited. (laughs) But cautious. It all sounded a little too on the nose to be true. So James told Tipu Tip that he thought he was lying. He's like, that's bullshit. You're exaggerating. But Tipu Tip did not exaggerate. He said, no, 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 this is 100% true. And if you give me a bit of cloth, which is extremely valuable currency in this area at the time, it's not like, I'll do this for nothing. This was like a big deal. He said he would show him himself. Mm -hmm. So James could hardly believe his ears. He sent his boy. Yes. Because he had a boy. To retrieve from his luggage six white handkerchiefs. Again, this is very valuable currency in this place and time to the Bakusu people. It's nothing to sneeze at. Except you, if you have a handkerchief. <laughs> and then you sneeze into it. Yes. <laughs> That's why you need them. James gave the handkerchief to Tipu Tip's associate, a man named Ali, who hurried over to a group of other men to make a transaction. So he whispered to them, and then the men took the handkerchiefs and went off. Sometime later, they returned with a 10 to 12-year-old girl who they had purchased from other local slave traders. Tipu Tip then went to the Bakusu chiefs with the girl and said, quote, this is a present from a white man who wishes to see her eaten. And you don't disregard that. Ooh. Yeah. White men were like a fearsome presence. Yeah. So if they said, well, this is a gift from these people, they're like, um, all right, that's what we're going to do. The man who had brought the girl to them then tied the child to a tree and, quote, stabbed the child twice, and she fell on her face, turning over on her side, end quote. Then three Kusu slaves, quote, ran forward and began to cut up the body of the girl, finally removing her head until not a particle remained. Each man took a piece away down to the river to wash it. In the most eerie detail reported, the girl, quote, never struggled or made a sound. At the sight of this, one might think a man would become ill, but not James Jameson. No. He took out his infamous journal and began to sketch. He drew the whole horrible event blow by blow exactly as it happened. James later claimed to letters in letters to his wife that he thought the whole thing was a joke and that his six handkerchiefs would not buy him an actual act of cannibalism. It was just like a thing they were all in on. Sure, he wanted to see it, but once it was there in front of his face, he was both horrified and helpless. James claims he only started sketching after they had begun to chop her up. He then decided to, quote, make the best of a bad lot and got out his pen. Oh, my God. He is a douchebag. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Now, these illustrations apparently didn't make it back to the States or wherever he was going back to. They didn't make it back anywhere. I'm sorry. He's not from the States. But they didn't make it back because in another quote that James said, because his diaries are available, you can read them. 
they're long. Um, he does say that it was very difficult to keep drawings that he made of the local natives because they didn't like to be drawn as they felt that, like, stole a piece of their identity. Okay. And so if you drew them, they would often take it and destroy it. Although some people doubt who destroyed these and when because they were pretty incriminating. Unfortunately for James, his interpreter did not seem to think he had been hoodwinked and spilled the news of this insidious event to Henry Morton Stanley, who then immediately had it published in the London Times. Because again, he has no loyalties to anyone. Fought for the Confederates <laughs> and the Union. <laughs> I'm just like speechless. This whole He'll, story is nuts. It's wild. He will tell on his own guy if it's going to get him. He, he then has the upper hand because he says, I had no idea this was occurring. These are the people who worked behind me. I'm appalled right. at who they are. Right, of course. If that, I mean, that was a smart move. Just throw it out there. And this and- is just one incident of one of these, like, dude bros he brought with him. They all behaved very badly, and they were all horrible to the locals. Several of them were, like, taken, I want, I want to say arrested, but I'm sure that's not the procedure that occurred. But they were brought to justice by local people because of mm-hmm. things that they did to them. You're all very bad boys. His boys were bad. bad. You're the bad boy. You're the worst boy. (laughs) (laughs) You can't come to the front. (laughs) Never going to be the best boy. No. Mm -hmm. You're all going to be rear columns. (laughs) You're all in the rear column. (laughs) Oh, no. So James Jameson was a ruined man. He tried to repair his image by relaying his own account of this event in a letter to his wife, who then tried to have it published in the New York Times. Took a couple years, but eventually it did happen. Oh, that and poor lady. I know. She Get just, out. She was like, I married me a rich man, and it went bad. <laughs> um, his account went as follows, and it, it's not super helpful. He said, quote, I sent my boy for six handkerchiefs, thinking it was all a joke, and that they were not in earnest. But presently, a man appeared leading a young girl of about 10 years old by the hand. And then I witnessed the most horrible, sickening sight I am ever likely to see in my life. He plunged a knife quickly into her breast twice, and she fell on her face, turning over on her side. Three men then ran forward and began to cut up the body of the girl. Finally, her head was cut off, and not a particle remained, each man taking his piece away down to the river to wash it. The most extraordinary thing was that the girl never muttered a sound, nor struggled, until she fell. He thought that was going to help him. I, oh my goodness. You're just saying it happened. He's so delusional. He's just so rich. He's like, oh, this will be fine. I'll just, it wasn't really my fault. I thought it was all a joke. They took it too far. That's exactly (laughs) his stance on the whole matter. Now, Tipu Tip, for his part, claimed that none of the event ever happened and everybody was lying. (laughs) The quotes are just like, everyone lied, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically, he said his interpreter was lying. And James Sligo Jameson also said, well, I think that my interpreter didn't understand the events as I did. I think I thought I said one thing, and then he said another, and then whisper down the lane went badly, and I never thought someone was actually going to die. Right. Like, I asked to see a cannibalistic ritual, Mm -hmm. and he said, cool, I need six handkerchiefs, and I just thought he just wanted them. He thought the whole thing was like a <laughs> And then cannibals. this little girl uh-huh. came. Yeah. And what? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow he misunderstood that I wanted a cannibalistic ritual, and then it occurred. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that, that's the misunderstanding. That is precisely the misunderstanding. <laughs> and that's the, the hill that, you know, the Jameson family will die on. They say he never thought, he never intended to actually have someone killed. He thought this was all an elaborate game of like, oh, <laughs> cannibals, right? Eh, eh, this is funny. We're having fun. But it, it, the transaction is too well documented. He 
says himself that that's what happened. You can't, that's like saying like calling somebody an awful name and going, just kidding. Like right. it's, it's already there. You did the thing. You can't just cover it up with, I thought it was a joke. Right. I mean, Holly, this was one bad thing that he did in his life. Okay. Should he be ruined because he let a young girl die for his own pleasure to be well. eaten? <laughs> well. Is that really so terrible? <laughs> well, British royal courts were gunning for James's head, but he never made it back. In 1890, James Sligo Jameson died of blackwater fever, which is a complication of malaria that causes the red blood cells to burst in the bloodstream, releasing hemoglobin directly into the blood vessels and into the urine, hence the term black water, because you pee like old blood, which appears quite black. Mm, so your, wa- your waters are black. Yes. Frequently, this leads to kidney failure, which is a terrible and painful way to go. And some might argue that was exactly what he deserved. Yay! Throwing like <laughs> yays, John. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, the, and that's um, the black sheep of the Jameson family. Wow. Isn't that nuts? Never going to look at a bottle of Jameson the same. And none of you will. <laughs> If I have to know that, you all have to know that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, strange man at the corner of the bar. (laughs) (laughs) For $50, I'll take you down. I'll tell you the story. (laughs) Don't tell us all. (laughs) So wild. Can I be a lady? Can I be a strange lady? Yeah. Okay, good. I'll still wear dark glasses and a dark jacket. Yeah, because you would look so good. Yeah, it's a cool look. Yeah. I made that guy cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Questions, comments, compliments? All. <laughs> All Thank <of> you. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the story. Toast? Toast. Boy. To all the good boys. <laughs> <laughs> They're all like the I just bought a boat guy from SNL. Yes. <laughs> I have so many references for who this guy is because I can see him so clearly in my head. They just love yacht rock. <laughs> They wear, like, you know, khaki shorts and polo shirts and wayfarers and boat shoes. Yes. There's a modern incarnation of them. I love it. Mm -hmm. They're just all blonde. (laughs) Their hair is parted way to the side. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry if any of our listeners are that guy. I'm sure that you are not. We're sorry, Chad. (laughs) I have a good friend named Chad. Sorry, Dylan. He is not this guy at all. Yeah. So... Anyway, toast. There are not a lot of people that come away good. Oh, t- his interpreter was good. He, like, told on him. He didn't really stop anything, though. Wait, but didn't he Didn't he sell slaves? No. Didn't he trade His slaves? interpreter was just— Which, what was his name? T- As- Asad Farah. Oh, that guy, right. He just traveled with him because he didn't speak the language. That's right. Sorry, I was thinking of the other one. Tid. If you're in the $1,000 patron tier, you get to bring an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you're an okay boy. Yeah. <laughs> Best good boy is much more. Oh my. <laughs> we might have to rethink our patron titles. <laughs> Never mind. No. No. Um, I don't know. Okay, I guess. Well, I guess to the little girl. Yes, that's a good one. Poor little girl. I don't know. That's a good sound. And I think that's the only person that comes away good in this story. Yeah. And um, to St. Patrick for getting rid of the snakes. Get those snakes (laughs) out of here. 
great. So yeah, uh, make sure you tune in on Friday to our live event. It's going to be way fun. If you're a patron, don't forget an hour beforehand, we'll have a Zoom link for you guys Mm -hmm. and you can virtually hang out with me and Leslie and John's going to be here and we're going to do some kind of mythical, fabulous Mm -hmm. makeup and yeah. And I think we're going to wear our toast shirts. Yeah. Um, if you bought a toast shirt, like I said in the opening, put it on, pour yourself a beverage, Mm -hmm. hold it up and take a picture for us. Yes. I'd love to have a lot of toasting fiends in their toast shirts. Yeah. That's a gallery I would greatly enjoy. And if we were in the darkest jungles with the worst boys, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. For $50, I'll tell you a different story.